Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. It's sometimes fun to hear the rustling of Bibles. You know, as Americans, we are fascinated with stories and movies about an underdog who overcomes amazing obstacles to achieve something that that person thought they would never achieve. Whether it's Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion growing up in the streets of Philadelphia to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Or whether it's Luke Skywalker, the humble farmer on the planet Tatooine on the backside of nowhere that rises to become the greatest Jedi Knight of all time. Or maybe it's in Will Smith's movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, a homeless man who is struggling to raise his son and becomes an intern at a company and later becomes promoted and becomes a millionaire, overcomes the odds. Or if you're a sports fan, some of you maybe have seen the movie Rudy, the young college player that wants to play football for Notre Dame, and he keeps getting benched and keeps getting benched, and finally at the end they chant his name, Rudy, Rudy, and he gets to to play in the game. Or Daniel Day-Lewis, My Left Foot. It's an older movie about a, a poor Irishman who had cerebral palsy and he could only have control over his left foot, and he became a famous artist and writer. I mean, we could go on and on, but there's something deep inside of us that roots for the underdog. We, we just like to see underdogs overcome amazing obstacles and do these great things that they thought they would never accomplish. Because there's something powerful about somebody being limited, somebody being desperate, somebody being helpless, and rising above the odds to beat those odds. But yet, when you think about the real world, not the movies, how often do we feel our limitations? I don't know about you, but how many times, don't raise your hand, please. Some of you are like tempted to do that. How often do we feel weak? Do we feel helpless? Do we feel clueless? Do we even at times feel hopeless? We experience those periods of desperation. And it's during those times that our faith is truly stretched. Our faith is challenged. And there's those times where we wonder, God, are you going to come through my weaknesses? Are you going to come through my limitations? God, are you going to come through and do something great to show your glory? Because I'm really feeling my limitations right now. We all struggle with a lack of faith from time to time. We all struggle with feelings of weakness, feelings of limitations, feelings of desperation, hopelessness, helplessness. Now, why do I draw your attention to limitations and hopelessness? 
and helplessness. Well, the two stories that we see before us in John chapter 6 are going to poignantly illustrate limitation, hopelessness, helplessness, lack of resources. And it's in the thick of this that Jesus shines the brightest. And so as we look at John chapter 6, here's the main point for this morning, the, the big idea. Jesus powerfully overcomes your desperate weaknesses and limitations in order to increase your faith in him. Jesus overcomes whatever desperate weaknesses you may have this morning, whatever limitations you may have this morning, and he does that in order to increase your faith in him. Now, John 6 is a very long chapter of Scripture. It has, I think, 72, 71 verses. So we're not going to look at all of John chapter 6. We're going to spend the next couple weeks in John chapter 6. It's long. But the one thing that you need to understand about John chapter 6 is it takes place during the Passover. It's very important. John mentions three Passovers in his gospel. This is the second of the Passovers that he mentions. So there's a theological undertone going on here about the Passover. And so let's just do a little bit of review when you think about the Passover. Remember last week we talked about all those images of Jesus in the Old Testament? What was the Passover? God raised up Moses as a deliverer. They sacrificed the blood of the lamb. They put it on the lentils and the doorpost. And what were the two big events that God did in the Exodus? Number one, God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And how did they go? They went through the Red Sea. They went through water. When they got on the other side of the Red Sea... How did God provide for their daily needs? He brought manna from heaven. Now you may ask, what is manna? That's what the Israelites asked. Manna means, what is it? And it was a bread-type substance that came down from heaven every day. So two images of the Passover, two images of the Exodus we need to have burned into our minds as we go through John chapter 6. Bread and water. Bread and water. God provided bread for the Israelites and manna. Jesus is going to feed the 5,000 with bread. God led the Israelites through water. The Red Sea passing through water. In this chapter, Jesus doesn't part the Red Sea. Jesus walks on the sea. So bread and water are these two images that we need to think about as we go into John chapter 6. So let's look at these two episodes, two stories. Episode 1, the feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, shows up in all four Gospels. It's the only story that shows up in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. So it's very, very important. So let's read this together, John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, 
There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, Jesus' popularity is growing. You've got large crowds now beginning to follow him. But why are they following him? Jesus is being followed here in verse 2 because they saw the signs that he was doing. They saw the miracles. So the question you've got to ask all throughout John chapter 6 is, why are these people coming to Jesus? Why are they following Jesus? What's their purpose in coming to him are they coming to jesus in authentic faith or do they just see jesus as a traveling miracle man do they see him as a cosmic vending machine to meet their selfish needs why are they coming to him and so jesus is going to test his disciples he's going to test their faith he's going to put a put them to the test it it tells us right there in verse five lifting up his eyes then seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him jesus said to philip Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. What was Philip's response going to be? We've got these 5,000 men. Okay, 5,000 men. Probably if you add women and children, the total number of this crowd is around 20,000 people. So Jesus says to Philip, 20,000 people, where are you going to go buy food? Now, it's very similar to what God asked Moses, or what Moses asked God back in Numbers chapter 11, verse 13. Okay, Moses has two million people in the wilderness, and they're following him, and they're complaining. And listen to Numbers 11, 13, and see if you see an echo here. Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. Where am I going to get food for two million people, God? Jesus turns to Philip and says, hey, Philip. Where are you going to go buy food for 20,000 people? Now, think about this for a moment. Scholars have tried to calculate this, and they calculated how much bread you could buy with 200 denarii. Now, what's 200 denarii? Most of you don't carry denarii around in your pocket. It's eight, days wage, or eight months' wages. So what you would make in eight months... That's how much it would cost to go get bread. Now, if you were to go buy bread with eight days' wages, and you could find a bakery that was open out there on the seashore, out there in Galilee, you could possibly, scholars have estimated, get 2,400 loaves. That only feeds half the men, assuming that the bakeries are up and running and that you know, the, the bread's being cooked. So what's Philip's response? He's he's calculating this in his mind. And what does he say to to Jesus? Verse 7, 
200 denarii worth of bread, eight to eight months' wages, would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. Jesus, this is hopeless. This is desperate. This is going to cost way too much money. We don't have that kind of money. And even if we did, and if there, even when there was, there was a bakery open, all we're going to be able to give them is a little Happy Meal. It's not going to even fill them up. It's going to be just not enough to even feed them. Jesus, this is a hopeless situation. Jesus, we can't do it. We just can't do it. Now, I wonder if you've ever had that attitude towards Jesus. Jesus, we just can't do it. You don't understand, Jesus. It's impossible. It's overwhelming. I can't, I can't afford it. I can't muster the strength. I don't have the resources. I don't have the power. Jesus, you've got, you've got to be kidding. I can't, I can't, I can't. And that's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. He wants you to be right there. In that helpless, in that hopeless, in that I can't situation so that he can, as the sovereign God, come and shine brightly in the midst of your helplessness because you see what's when we're weak that Jesus is strong now Andrew comes along Peter's brother and it's a little bit better but it's still hopeless he says Jesus there's a boy here verse 9 there's a boy here he's got five barley loaves he's got two fish but what are these little things for for 20,000 people it's a joke Jesus I mean, this is barely enough for this boy to feed his own family. There's no way we're going to feed 20,000 people. With five barley loaves and two little sardines, probably a little pickled fish. Now, it's interesting that John gives us a detail here that the other gospel writers do not give. And the, the detail is that it was barley loaves. Look at verse 9. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves now you may say well that's just an incidental bit of information why focus on barley loaves barley was the bread of the poor people it was a poor man's bread it's actually used for animals like you'd feed the chickens with the bread the barley this is not your nice crushed earth grains whole grains stuff you're going to get at whole food this is walmart white bread generic Okay, this is this is like stuff you'd feed the birds with animals with. So even this little boy, even the boy's own bread is not really good bread. It's barley bread. It's poor man's bread. And that's exactly the way Jesus wants it. Because you see, in Philip's mind and in Andrew's mind and probably by extension, in the disciples mind, they're looking at this situation. They're looking at the crowds. And they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, this is hopeless. This is helpless. We don't have the resources. We are, we, are, we are feeling our limitation. Let's just send them away. Actually, Mark's gospel tells us that the, the disciples just wanted to send them away. Let's just send them away, Jesus. Let's not even deal with it. Let's just send them home hungry. We can't handle this. And so these disciples are desperate. They're clueless, they're helpless, they're frustrated. Fundamentally, they're lacking faith in Christ. But yet, in the midst of their weakness, in the midst of this test, this testing of their faith, Jesus shines the brightest. What does Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? But he said to me, this is 
Jesus talking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. They're weak. They're powerless. But that's a perfect opportunity for God's glory to shine through and Christ's power to shine through. Now, what does Jesus do before he distributes the bread and the fish? Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. About, the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 5,000 men, you had women and children, probably around fifteen to 20,000 people. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Now, Jesus gives thanks. Jesus says a blessing. Now, Jesus doesn't have to do this because he's God. But he's modeling to us the importance of giving thanks to God. Now, he probably said what was the typical Jewish blessing. The father of the house, before they would eat a meal, would give a traditional Jewish blessing. It would probably sound something like this. The text doesn't tell us, but scholars tell us probably a traditional Jewish blessing would be something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Now, what we don't have in this miracle is how Jesus did it. It doesn't tell us. But we see the aftermath, do we not? Look at verses 11 and 12. You see the aftermath of the miracle, how amazing it was. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them. How did he do it? I don't know. Don't ask me how he did it. He distributed, some scholars, by the way, some like liberal scholars would say, oh, I've actually read this in a commentary. You know, the people kind of forgot they had food, and all of a sudden they pulled it out and realized that they had food all along. They just kind of magically, it wasn't, it wasn't they, they tried to downplay the miracle as if Jesus wasn't able to feed 20,000 people. They just kind of forgot they had their lunchbox, and they pulled it out. Oh, yeah, we got our food. No, that's not what happened. The, the text doesn't tell us how he did it, but look at verse 11. When he had given thanks, he distributed it to those who were seated, so also the fish look as much as they wanted. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, they had as much as they wanted. They had eaten their fill. Nobody went home hungry. Five barley loaves and two little sardines fed 20,000 people to where nobody was complaining, saying, I didn't get enough to eat. Now, who would complain after that, by the way? That would be a problem. If somebody complained after you got miraculously fed, there's probably one person in the group, don't you? I mean, it's not recorded, but there's probably that one whiny person in the group. I didn't get enough bread. Sit down and shut up, okay? Jesus just fed you, and you didn't have anything. There's always the whiny person there. The text doesn't tell us, but I'm sure, human nature, there's that one whiny person that was there in that crowd of 20,000. Pulled on their mom. I didn't get enough to eat. Sit down and shut up. He's giving us free food. Come on now. We don't know. All we know is that they had plenty to eat. In verse 13, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from, fragments from the five barley loaves by those who had eaten. Okay, so he gathered up the leftovers. It was traditional in Jewish custom to gather up the leftovers of their meal. Now, it's interesting here. This is the only gospel or the only um, miracle in all four gospels to, be, to show up in all four gospels. And it's a miracle of miracles. Jesus miraculously provided for their needs. Now, what specific needs do you have this morning that Jesus alone can provide for? 
I'm not talking about wants. I'm not talking about selfish desires. I'm talking about what are the legitimate needs in your life this morning that only Jesus can provide for. He's got the power to do that. Paul tells us in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's able to provide for your needs. But yet here's the fundamental question. What's the response of this crowd of 20,000 people that have just been miraculously fed? Are they truly coming to Jesus in faith? Are they trusting in Christ alone as their Messiah? Or do they see Jesus as a cosmic Santa Claus, a cosmic vending machine, a traveling miracle man? Hey, I've got a free meal here for the rest of my life. If we could just have Jesus come over here, set up bakery, we we will be set for life. Because we're going to have these free meals coming when we get hungry. What are the responses of the crowds? Though they respond in two ways. They respond to Jesus in two ways. Here's the first way they respond. Look at verse 14. Here's the first response. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Okay. He's a prophet. He's a good teacher. He's a miracle worker. He's a prophet. Notice what they don't say. They don't say he's Messiah, he's Lord, he's Master, he's Savior. He's, he's just a, he's a good teacher. He's, he's, he's provided for my needs. And that's the way a lot of people respond to Jesus today. He's a good moral teacher. He's a good guru. He's a, philo- a guy with some philosophical wisdom. He's a wonderful life coach that can help me make, make much of my life and give me a better life. He's there to, to meet my needs, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I just use Jesus to, to meet my selfish needs. Hey, he's a great teacher. He exists to make me happy. But do they just submit to him here as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, as Master? We don't see that. And the second response is even... More interesting. He's a great moral teacher. He's a great provider of of goods and services. He's given me my happy meal. But look at this in verse 15. And I don't quite understand why they did this. Some scholars said that in this area in Galilee, there were a lot of um, political revolutionaries that wanted to overthrow Rome. But look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's amazing. They wanted to to basically grab Jesus, put him on their shoulders, and rush right into Rome and have Jesus oust the, the, the emperor and basically militarily overthrow the government and set himself up as king right then and there. They were going to basically bum-rush Jesus and make him king. They were going to forcibly do that. And so for them, Jesus is just an, a means to an end. What's their end If we just had the right man in power, if we just had the right president, everything would be all right. If we just had the right Supreme Court justices, everything would be all right. 
If we just had the right Congress, everything would be all right. If we just had the right governor, the right mayor, the right this and that, if we just had our guy in power, everything would be all right. And there's a great Greek word for that. You want to know the Greek word for that? Baloney. You can have your man or your woman or your boy or your girl or your person in whatever position of power there is in politics, and they will sin, they will disappoint you. And so the means to the end that this, this group wanted to do was to get Jesus to be their political influence of power. But notice what Jesus says. We'll, we'll see this later on when we get to his trial before Pilate in John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Okay, so Jesus is not going to be forced to be king. He's not going to be forced to be king against his will. By the way, here's just a side note. Don't ever try to force Jesus to do anything. You will always lose. Jesus is never going to be forced. He's never going to be manipulated. He's not going to be on your timetable, and he's not going to be on these people's timetable. He's not going to be king. His time is not yet to be king. He will be king coming on a white horse at the end of the age to set up his kingdom. But right here and now, his kingdom's not of this world. They, see, here's, the, here's what they wanted. They wanted a guru who was a good teacher they wanted a political power person they wanted someone that could meet their selfish needs they wanted a good moral teacher they they saw jesus as all these things and sadly this is how a lot of people treat jesus today but what's the one thing these people don't see they're not coming in faith to christ to have their sins forgiven and to receive eternal life they basically want a vending machine guru who will give them their selfish desires and be their king so do you see jesus as a means to an end to give you your selfish stuff you know there's a health wealth and prosperity gospel that says if you just give your life to jesus he'll give you more stuff you'll never be hungry you'll never be um you'll be wealthy you'll be rich you'll be powerful all the all your dreams will come true if you come to jesus he'll be a great life coach and a lot of times we want the benefits of what Jesus can give us, but we don't want Jesus himself. What's the greatest need of this crowd right now? Humanly speaking, you say, what's the greatest need of this crowd? Of 20,000 people, what's their greatest need? Well, it's obvious, Pastor Sean, their greatest need is to have their bellies filled. That's their greatest need. They're hungry, right? Wrong. That's not their greatest need. Humanly speaking, that's what everybody thought was their greatest need. I just, I'm hungry. I need, I need food. I need bread. That's not their greatest need. Their greatest need is spiritual. They are hungry spiritually because they are lost, and they need only what Christ can give them in eternal life. They needed the spiritual sustenance of Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, as we will see next week. So what's going on here? The disciples only see their limitation. The crowd only see Jesus as a traveling miracle worker. So that's episode one, the feeding of the 5,000. But let's look at episode two, Jesus walks on the water. These are tied together, okay? So let's pick up in verse 16. Jesus walks on the water, bread and water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea 
got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now Jesus literally heads to the hills to get away from this crowd that wants to make him king. And it's nighttime and he's up in the hills and his disciples are out on the sea. Now remember, these disciples are fishermen. They know how to fish. They know how to handle the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a rough place. Even today in the Sea of Galilee, if you have a motorboat, a powerboat, you've got to keep it anchored because of the winds. Just think about a wooden boat back in Jesus' day. And so it's a dark and stormy night. And these disciples are rowing like crazy. They're facing a headwind. And the waves and the wind are crashing. And they're, they're out there probably, you know, fearful. Who knows if they're going to die. The, the storm is raging. And here's another situation where they're desperate, they're helpless, they're weak, they're powerless. We don't know what to do. We're rolling like crazy. We're not getting anywhere. Waves are crashing in. It's a dark and stormy night. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the water. And some of the other gospels says they thought they saw a ghost. Now, let me just tell you again, this is not Jesus standing on a sandbar. As some liberal commentators will say, he was just standing on a sandbar. Okay, they're four miles out to sea. They're against a strong headwind, and these are, these are, <laughs> these are tested fishermen. They're not going to freak out at a guy standing on a sandbar. Jesus comes and walks on the water. So it's another miracle. He has power over bread. He has power over water. He's walking on the water. Now, if that's not as miraculous as you can imagine, it's what Jesus says that's the most miraculous. And you do not get this in your English translation, so let me give you the, the literal translation of what Jesus says. Look at verse 20. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Literally, here's what he says. I am. That's all he says. I am. Don't be afraid. I am has now shown up on the scene. The great I am. Who alone can say I am? That's only God. Back when Moses was at the burning bush, what did God say to him out of the burning bush? Back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus here is unequivocally saying, I am equal with the Father. And here's a preview of coming events. There are seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. This is just a preview. I am the bread of life. We're going to see that next week. But he says simply, I am. Don't be afraid. I am. I am has shown up. The great I am is here. The I am who is sovereign. And I wonder if they had echoes of the Psalms in their minds when Jesus calmed the sea, when he showed up as the great I am there on the water. Psalm 77, 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. 
Indeed, the deep trembled. When the waves saw you, Jesus, they were afraid. You should, the great I am shown up. Psalm 107, 28 through 30. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. You see, again, our limitations, our weaknesses, our helplessness, our hopelessness, our cluelessness, all that's a perfect opportunity for Christ to come right in the middle of that and to show his power and to increase our faith. And that's what he's doing with these disciples. And they're missing the boat. If you want Jesus to be a vending machine to meet your selfish needs, if you want Jesus to be power politics, if you want Jesus to be just a life coach, a guru to give you to give you some good life principles, you are literally missing the boat. Jesus is so much more than that. He is the great. I am. And think about this. What does I am mean? I am here. Some of you may need to hear that this morning. Some of you may be like, I have no, I, I, I'm desperate. I'm weak. I just need to hear the words of the gospel that Jesus, I am, is here. He's right here. He's with me today. Whatever need I may have, whatever whatever helpless situation I'm at, I just may need to hear today that Jesus is here. Here I am. And notice the response of the disciples. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Verse 21, they were glad. They were glad to take him into the boat. They were, they were overwhelmed with joy. Oh, it's Jesus. Come on in, Jesus. Come into the boat. We are excited. Come into the boat. We are glad that you are here. Now, does that describe you? Jesus, I am so glad you are here. Come into my life. Enter into my life. Jesus, I am excited to have you lead and guide and rule my life. You are the great I am. I receive you. I welcome you as the great I am. Not as a guru, not as a life coach, not as a traveling vending machine, cosmic Santa Claus, but as the great I am. See, why do you come to faith in Jesus? Do you come to faith in Jesus to get stuff out of Jesus? Or do you come to faith in Jesus to get Jesus? You see, American evangelicalism has a very distorted view of Jesus. Here's what you hear all the time. Jesus exists to make me happy. And he gives me my free ticket to heaven. And I'll put that ticket in my back pocket, and when it's convenient, I'll pull it out and try to cash it in and get all the good stuff Jesus gives me. But I really don't care about Christ. I'll put him in my back pocket. Because after all, it's all about me. What is true faith? I'm just going to read this exactly how I wrote it in my manuscript to make sure this is what true faith is. It is where your soul is captivated by the supreme beauty of Christ and your heart rests in Jesus as the greatest and most glorious good. Are you captivated by Jesus simply because it's Jesus? Do you see him as the greatest and most glorious good? Do you see him as supremely valuable? Do you see him as the great I am?
Do you rest in him? Are you weak today? Are you powerless today? Are you really feeling the limitations in your life today? Are you feeling hopeless? Are you feeling helpless? Are you feeling weak? Then I've got great news for you. That's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. He doesn't want you to be prideful. He doesn't want you to be inflated in what you can accomplish. He wants you to be weak, to be desperate, to be helpless, to be hopeless. Because it's in those situations that he overcomes all the odds and he shows himself powerful and he shows himself mighty and he shines brightly and he increases your faith. I came across a psalm this week. Psalm 72, 13. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. One of the hard things about living in northeastern Colorado is that nobody admits they're needy. Nobody admits they're weak. Everybody's strong. We're people of the farms and the ranches, and we don't have to admit that we have weaknesses and needs. But you see, we all, if we're honest and we face ourselves today, we're all weak, we're needy, we're restless, we're powerless. But Jesus gives grace to the weak. Listen to Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us while we were weak. He didn't wait for us to get ourselves together. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He did not wait for us to somehow muster enough strength to be good enough to be saved. Jesus said, I look down and see their weakness. I look down and see their helplessness. I look down and see their hopelessness. I look down and see that they are hellbound. They are dead in sin. They are toast. And I am choosing in my love to come down and be one of them in human form and to go die on a cross because they're too weak and they can never save themselves. And the only way they're going to be rescued as if I give my life for them. At just the right time, Christ dies for the weak and gives grace to the weak. So will you be like those disciples who probably after the feeding of the 5,000 looked at each other and their jaws dropped and went, and who were out in the boat rowing and saw Jesus walking on the water and looked at each other and went, and look at verse 21. They were glad to take him into the boat. Would you gladly, joyfully, with your jaw dropped open, say, Jesus, I'm weak. Would you come to me? Would you save me? Would you rescue me? I surrender my life to you. You are the great I am. You're the great I am. Would you bow your heads this morning? And spend time in your weakness, in your powerlessness, in your frustration, whatever thing you are facing this morning, would you go to the great I am who has power over your weakness and would you gladly receive him this morning? Would you spend some time in prayer before the great I am?
Thank you that you are powerful when we are weak. Jesus, I'm thankful that at just the right time, when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were ungodly, you came and died for us. You didn't wait. You didn't wait for us to get our act together. You didn't wait for us to get strong enough to save ourselves. You didn't wait for us to somehow muster up enough courage to be able to get rid of our sin. We were weak. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We were hell-bound. And in the midst of that, your great love is what moved you to come down and die for us in our weakness. And Lord Jesus, not only did you die for us, but Lord, you provide for us right now. So Lord, I pray for those in this room this morning that have some desperate needs. Lord, those may be some financial needs. Those may be physical needs. They may be emotional. Lord, whatever it may be, would everybody in this room leave this place with the confidence to know that Jesus, you are the great I am. And will we gladly receive you into the boat of our lives this week? Would you minister, Holy Spirit, in ways that I can't see in your sovereignty? Would you minister to hearts even right now that people would leave changed because they've met Jesus this morning? Thank you for meeting us here, Lord, and being the great I am. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.